Um, I will maybe make some remarks about Mother's Day later on. <clears throat> I haven't prepared a Mother's Day sermon, though. Uh, we're just going to soldier on in Galatians. And we will pick it up in chapter 3, verse 29, and make our way hopefully through verse 7 of chapter 4. Before we, we do anything else, let me pray one more time. Our Father, we adore you. And we come before you this morning, um, grateful for a day that is set aside for us to do that very thing, to worship you and to make much of you. It's medicine for our souls and a balm for our hearts mm -hmm. to, to just stop fixating on us for a few minutes and fixate on you. And you knew that, which is why you ordained moments like this where your people can gather together and encourage one another and praise and, and worship you. And we pray that as, uh, as we open your word and read it and study it this morning, Jesus, you would reveal yourself to us afresh or for the first time for some. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move through this place in, in an undeniable way, that hearts and minds would be changed and it would be observable to the human eye. Um, and we ask for this with the corresponding trepidation, recognizing that there are things we have come in here with this morning that we need to lay down and leave at the foot of the cross and the throne of grace. So would you loosen our grip and help us to, uh, help us to, to be malleable, to change as you would have us change. And, and Father, help us to have the humility to do it um, where, where we can see one another doing it. Use your word now, we pray in Jesus' beautiful name. God's people said, amen. amen. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3, verse 29 says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come and God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. <coughs> Woo, that was loud. <coughs> Last week, we followed along as Paul answered what I think is kind of the burning question. It stands to reason as you work through um, the fact that justification is apart from the law, you, you're left then with this wondering about, okay, then what is the purpose of the law if it's not that? Um, and so looking at Romans 7 alongside Galatians 3, 
we saw that a big part of the reason for the law is to bring us to a place where we realize just how sinful we really are. And the law does this by setting up buoys and boundaries along the way in the experience of, of our human lives, um, which, you know, we immediately fixate on with a burning desire to go past. Buoys and boundaries that were, as soon as we see them, uh, like when you go swimming as a young man, uh, and there's buoys set up for whatever reason on the lake that say, don't go past this. What do you immediately do as a young man is not too far, but you go past it. Um, I can walk by a thousand yards, meaning front yards, and never have any desire to traipse on the grass until somebody puts a sign up that says, keep off grass. Right? That's the way the law works. It, it shows us just how sinful we are. <clears throat> it's not the fault of the law. It's the fault of our hearts. So by constantly and consistently exposing our iniquity, which is our bent toward sinning of all kinds, the law serves as a tutor or a guide or a pedagogue, which is a word we don't use anymore. Um, a pedagogue in ancient society was someone appointed by wealthy parents to follow their sons around and beat them when they got out of line. That, <laughs> some of us were made for that job. <clears throat> so we have this pedagogue beating us every time we got out of line until we finally recognize the truth. And the truth is, I am always out of line. That's what the law shows us. Therefore, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, whom we reach often bloodied and beaten by that tutor and that guide. Because the law by itself is merciless. The law by itself is God's requirement devoid of God's covenant. The law is by itself God's demand divided from God's desire for us. It communicates nothing about the Lord's heart for us as people. It only communicates his demand of us. As people. But, says Paul, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. <clears throat> uh, YouTube and TikTok are alike in this very important way. Uh, groups of geniuses have gotten together and come up with, they call them algorithms, that identify what you are into in order to show you more of it so that you'll keep watching. Evidently, I didn't know this about myself. Evidently, TikTok has discovered that I am profoundly and ceaselessly interested in sheepdog videos <laughs> because they keep coming up. Am I the only one? So yeah, so it's a me thing. They're really, they're quite remarkable, though. You, these folks 
take these videos of these dogs that, I mean, they obey on a dime to little whistles and clicks and every now and then a word or two to make the dog engage in whatever the, the, the shepherd wants and in a specific direction too, like the dog knows. You want me to loop out to the left and herd the sheep over here? You want me to loop out to the right and herd the sheep this way? But the, the funniest thing to me is I imagine that the sheep have to know, like, the dog is cool, right? But they're overwhelmed as the dog is, you know, looping around and hurting them with the desire to run away from it. They've got to know that the dog's not going to hurt them, but they still run from it, right? And a big gaggle of sheep, just wherever the dog is, that's where the sheep aren't. And that's how the sheep moves, or the dog moves the sheep where the shepherd wants them to go. I think if Paul could have seen sheepdogs, he would have used that as his illustration of the law, because that's what the law does to us until we come finally into the fold of the shepherd. Herded by the dog to the master, relentlessly pursued by what seems to us a dangerous predator, the law. We flee from the law, hemmed in, and whenever we attempted to stray, the, the law was there nipping at us until finally we come safely to the fold. And Paul goes on, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, in our egalitarian society, we want very badly for this to say sons and daughters, right? But it wouldn't, it wouldn't have made an ounce of sense for Paul to say that because in ancient times, daughters couldn't inherit anything. So what he's in effect saying is you all, male or female, are inheritors because you are sons of the king through the gospel. And then last week, I closed with this consideration. The question was, what if your obedience flowed from a grateful childlike heart rather than fear, shame, and guilt? And so we'll pick it up this morning with verse 29 in chapter 3, which says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is an important if. Our culture, from my observation, tends to take one of two positions. Position number one, probably the more popular one is, there is no God. Position number two, um, popular among the spiritual, is we are all God's children. Both of those positions are wrong. In John chapter 1, verse 11, John writes and says, when considering Jesus, he came to his own. And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there is a great delineator. As many as believed, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So Paul says, 
if you are Christ's. Which is important because just a moment ago he said, you all are sons of Abraham. Heirs according to promise is how he'll say it here. If you are Christ's, you are heirs according to promise, not according to works. Amen. Amen. Verse one of chapter four. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So Paul has compared the law to a, like a prison warden in 323, a guardian in 324. And now he compares its preparatory role to that of a, a, a guardians or a, the trustee of a minor. The law, as it were, prevents soon t- a, 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 a too young to appreciate the wealth child from squandering their wealth when they inherit at too young of an age through a trust. So once you're of age, then you can have all of this. But until then, you'll only have what's necessary uh, to survive until you've matured. You can't have access to the full inheritance. Now, what some people have done, and I have to address this, is they take the metaphor too far and suppose that Paul is talking about the full blessing of the Holy Spirit being restrained. That's not at all what he means. He's simply talking about this is what the law does in one very real sense. It kept you from ruining yourself until you could finally come to a place of maturity where you would no longer ruin yourself. In human terms, what he's saying is, if nothing else, that relentless pedagogue, tutor, guide kept you from some heinous sin. While yet you ran into some, it kept you from others and protected you so that you would come to that place where by faith you would receive Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. Verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come means the time that God, who is sovereign, set over all things he's sovereign and he he established for us because we are finite. He established for us time this linear movement that we make through history, right? God exists outside of time. (sighs) Don't know how that works, but he, he is both in this moment and the last one and the one that's yet to come. But he established the boundaries of time. And then when he determined that the fullness of this temporal reality had come, he sent forth his son, which means that the gospel is born out of the heart of God. Too many Christians have this idea, and I know I've addressed this before. You'll hear me address it again because I think it's important. Too many Christians have this idea that God is like most accurately depicted in the Old Testament, like an angry wizard stomping around, setting things on fire. And then Jesus is... The, the kinder, gentler version of God portrayed in the New Testament. 
who's just floating around on fairy wings, sprinkling love dust on everyone. The reality is that the Father and the Son covenanted together before the beginning of time to redeem us through the gospel. The Son was sent from a heart of love that the Father has for sinners. It's not as though Jesus, realizing that God was angry, snuck out of heaven and came down and did this intercessory work, this substitutionary atonement, and now as much as God would like to still be angry with us, he just can't. No, no, no. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, born of a woman. Women, take note. This plan of God, that that through a woman, the redemption of sinners would be brought into the natural world. This plan of God, that through a woman, the redemption of sinners would be brought into the natural world resonates in sympathetic harmony with the heartbreak and the horror of Genesis 3. Perhaps no more fitting text for a Mother's Day sermon, which this most certainly is not, but this one, to find encouragement as a mother here. It was Eve who first came under the spell of legalism and licentiousness. When the serpent insinuated that the heart of God was miserly, she came to God's defense. Indeed, has God said that you, he put you in this garden filled with all these trees and all this fruit and said you can't eat any of it? Well, she knew hermeneutics, man, and she wasn't going to be taken in like that. So she said, no, 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 no. He didn't say we can't eat from any of it. He said of that one we can't eat. And the devil clapped his hands in glee as she fell right into his trap. And he invited her to take license instead. Fixate on the one thing, the keep off grass sign, the buoy, the warning. Don't do that. Don't do that or you'll die. Do this and you'll live. Don't do that. And the devil says to her, you're not going to die. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll become like him. And he doesn't want you to know everything that he knows. It was a woman who took license. She couldn't have known what God meant when he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. She couldn't have known. In the moments when that When that curse was being spoken, she could not have known what all that meant. But how unsettling must it have been for her after her husband just threw her under the bus, after her husband didn't step in and deal with the devil because, oh, by the way, he was there with her while all this was going on, to then hear from the lips of her creator, if God has lips in that moment, I don't know, I guess not, but the voice of her creator saying, Your pain is going to be multiplied in childbirth. And your desire is going to be at odds with your husband's, but he's going to rule over you. She couldn't have known what that meant, but she understood when her sons were born. She understood when they were sick. 
Oh, a mom understands the pain of raising children, doesn't she? When they go off out of the fold and break her motherly heart by being sinful. She understood when one of them killed the other. That curse. And she certainly understood when she breathed her last breath on this earth. Then, 4,000 years later, Mary understood too as she delivered her first son. She understood pain on that cold night with no bed to give birth in, in a stable. She understood when Jesus got left behind at the temple and she didn't know where he was and she feared that she had lost the Son of God. Like, moms, you think you know what it's like to panic over where your kid is? Imagine Mary, two days later, looking back and going, Jesus isn't with the caravan? (laughs) There was no find my... She understood when he called her woman instead of mother at the wedding feast at Cana. She understood when she stood outside a crowd and couldn't reach Jesus and sent messengers to him to let him know that she and his brothers were there. And Jesus, instead of stopping everything to go and tend to his mother's requirements, said, my mother and my brothers are those who know the will of God and do it. Ouch. She knew. She understood when he was arrested. She understood when he was hanging on that cross. God ordained redemption through a son born to a woman. In part because he wanted women to be keenly aware of their own redemption from the curse, I believe. He didn't have to do it that way. God could have come up with another way. And Mary stands there in some sense emblematic of God's plan of redemption for women specifically. He condescended to be born to a woman the same way your sons and your daughters will be born to you. God wasn't above that wasn't above being implanted in the womb of a sinful woman. Your pain will be multiplied as a mother. And I'm going to redeem you from this curse by the very process with which I'm afflicting you. Every time your motherly heart breaks over your children, hear that resonant harmony. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the same law, the same curse, the same misery. Though Eve was the first to be deceived and might be blamed for failing humanity until Adam took and ate along with her, the heart of God toward his daughters is one of breathtaking love. Breathtaking love. If I could love my daughters, the way the Father in heaven loves you. There would be two that don't grow up with daddy issues. But they will, because I can't. Moms, 
Rest assured, you are no less valuable than any man, and you are called to believe the same gospel by the Father who sent his Son to redeem us who were under the law. Now, I must point out that we are not redeemed from the law. That's not what it says. Lest we become licentious or antinomian. We are redeemed from sin so that we might receive adoption and be sons and daughters of the king. Sin is that which from we are, which we are redeemed. So he says in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So here's the picture. Justification is the one-time declaration by God, the judge, that you, the sinner, are in fact righteous. Thank God that he did not stop there. That God, the judge, did not bang the gavel, declare that you are innocent, and then vacate the bench. He bangs the gavel, declares that you're innocent, and then takes you home with him. Last week, I said a few things. I said, God delights in you. I said, God loves you just the way you are. Oh, we don't like that in reform circles, do we? <laughs> when God thinks of you, his face is filled with joy. When he sees you living your day-to-day life, he is filled with pleasure. He loves being in your company. He loves to hear your prayers. When he looks at you, what he sees, point of fact, is a delightful son or daughter, if you are Christ's. And this week, after weeks now of saying that the, the, the difference between the pit of legalism and the pit of licentiousness is the difference between those things and being saved is relationship with God. You might have doubted me, or maybe you thought I was oversimplifying. Maybe you thought I was playing a little fast and loose with the gospel, but look where Paul has just taken us. Adoption as sons. That means relationship. To prove my point, let's look together at Luke 15. I should say, to prove God's point. If I can be so bold. Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus is talking. And he said, there was a woman who had two sons and the younger of them said, I'm sorry, there was a man who had two sons. That would be interesting for multiple reasons. Um, The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. Now, if you're at all familiar with um, the gospels, then 
you're already thinking of the application and the different messages that you've probably heard from, you know, like vacation Bible school on up in Christianity, um, the different application that you've heard of this parable, this story that Jesus tells. And um, I've probably preached two sermons in my life on Luke 15. The first one was close to right. The second one was closer to right. And this one is the closest yet that I've come because the application uh, is, is more consistent with the rest of Christology than anything else I've come up with. And it didn't come to me until last night out of the blue while I was sitting at the dinner table. It just popped into my head. Oh, it's not only not the prodigal son parable. It's not only that it's the parable of the older brother. That's true. It's not only that Jesus is still talking about how heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. That's true. It's also this. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. What, what is that? I want what I want, and I don't want you. It's a vivid picture of a son choosing license over relationship. He divided his property between them. <clears throat> Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. This is the outcome of being licentious. Remember, I, I, I said when we move in rhythms of self-indulgence, we are always progressing deeper in a state of depravity. I think I said that the first sermon in Galatians, that the separation between sinner and creator is one that's not linear, like we're just moving away. We're also moving down into the depths of hell, as it were. Our sins become grosser and grosser. We abandon increasingly the natural function for that which is unnatural. We become, through our sinning, literally less and less like human beings and more and more like unreasoning animals. Behold the younger son, ready to eat pig food because of his own sin. His licentious desires took him not only out of relationship with his father, but into the depths of depravity and despair outside of that relationship. Verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Remember that I said too, that thing about ping-ponging between legalism and license? Here it is. The younger son does not presume to simply go back into relationship with the father. He's far too self-aware for that. 
He knows he's no longer worthy of that. So he puts himself mentally in servitude to the father first. He will earn the blessing of living in his father's house. The younger son moves from license right into legalism. He arose, verse 20, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Well, imagine if the father had just accepted the terms of the younger son. We would view that as just, wouldn't we? Yeah, you can come back, but you're going to work. That's how we are. And to be fair, we're not God, so maybe that's how we need to be to a certain extent. But this is not the heart of God. While he was still a long way off. So this son, this younger son, he comes to his senses. He realizes, look, even if I just camped out by the trash can at dad's house, I would eat better than this. So I'm going to go back and see if he'll just let me be a slave in his household. And he just starts moving in the direction of dad's house. And dad apparently is waiting and watching because while he's still a long way off, the father sees him and runs to meet him. Now don't over apply the parable. This is not to say that we take the first steps by faith towards salvation and God does the rest. Absolutely not. If Jesus were trying to illustrate the institution of salvation, this is how he would have described it. While the son was in the pig slop, eating happily pig food with the pigs, the father rolled up, snatched him out of there and said, you're not going to live like that. You're one of my kids because that's what God does. But for our purposes, this is the heart of God. Bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. Why? Why do all of this? The boy has done nothing to deserve such blessing. Nothing. He deserves to be rejected, despised, and ignored. But when the father's heart sees a sinner repenting, it is so much different than what we expect. He does not want you to come out of licentiousness and move into legalism, slavishly obeying. What he wants is a relationship with all his children. Look at his heart, verse 24. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. That's the heart of God towards you when you come to him out of your filth out of your sin, out of your sorrow. Now, I've had to deal with my son when he just accidentally stepped in dog poop. And I'm a little reticent to deeply embrace him. 
I would prefer you clean up first, but no, I have to do it. The sun comes from this pig slop. And the father rejoices. Then there's this other son, the Reformed Baptist one. (laughs) Verse 25. His Reformed Baptist older son was in the field. (laughs) And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. The servant said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. The older brother was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. He was angry and refused to go in? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, he was. Because the legalist cannot rejoice over the licentious being in relationship with God. The legalist knows almost nothing of being in relationship with God. He answered his father and said, Look, (laughs) after these many years I have served you. Literally, this should be translated, I have slaved for you. These many years I have slaved for you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. This is how the legalist views the father. All these years I have slaved for you. I never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a celebration. Where is the relationship there? It's just missing. It's all about service and value and what's owed. This is economics. This is not a relationship. Where is the legalist's delight in the Father? It doesn't exist. He doesn't have a relationship with the Father. There he has been all this time, slaving away for the Father, doing exactly what he thinks the Father wants him to do. Why? One reason, so that he can prove that he's better than that other son and thereby attain the righteousness which he cannot. He, like the younger son, just wants the Father's stuff. Where is my goat? Where is my party? Give me what you owe me. There's no difference between these two other than the younger one came out of the gate saying it. Give me my share of the inheritance. I'm out. It's the same thing that the legalist says. It's the same heart which the younger son had in the beginning, but cloaked in the law. And the father responds, Verse 31, son, you are always with me and all that I I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. How fascinating to me anyway, that while the older calls the younger, this son of yours, the father rightly calls the younger son, your brother. Imagine how those words fell on the heart of the older brother. That's your brother you resent. 
That's your brother you hate. That's your brother who's returned from the grave. And you're angry because I long to be in communion with him? All right, so which one are you? Left to yourself. I don't mean to insinuate anything. But we tend towards one of these two, generally speaking, more than the other, right? Give me what's mine. I'm out of here. Or I stayed and you owe me. Like, which, which Christian are you? Because what God would have you understand is that he wants to be in relationship with you, licentious person. He wants to be in relationship with you too, you legalist. And if you would like to change and not be that which you are bent toward being, the only way it's going to happen is if you are in relationship, in fellowship with God the Father. So the cure, well, we'll see in the coming weeks how profound this doctrine of adoption is because Paul's nowhere near done. Let's pray.